You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. You're watching Culture Determined. I'm your host, Arian Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is Mike Watson. Mike, could you please introduce yourself? Hey there. Uh, I'm Mike Watson. I'm a critic, curator, and theorist of media and, and contemporary arts. And I'm based in Finland via Italy and the UK, originally where I was born. Uh, thank you for coming on. So you're also the author of a new book. And the title is The Meaning of Mark Fisher by the Frankfurt School for Saw Capitalist Realism and What to Do About It. I'm holding it up to the camera right, right now. And so it's a long title and it has an interesting cover. And I actually think I, I saw the, this cover image and that one was and as soon as I saw it in like promotional material a couple months ago, I was like, I want to learn more about this. And so yeah. for our podcast listeners who can, cannot see the cover image, it well, how, how would you describe the illustration here, which I believe you did yourself? Uh, yeah, I did. But it's, it's taken from a popular meme called Are You Winning, Son? And in the meme, it has a father going through a doorway, which is on the left of the book cover. And it has a son sitting at uh, his computer. This is all very crudely drawn. And he's saying, are oh, you winning, son? But in the original meme, the son was actually um, playing some kind of sex computer game or engaging in cyber sex. So the thing is, the kind of joke is that dad's coming in asking the son if he's winning and it's something he can't really win at and it's cyber sex, which is anyway kind of funny, I suppose. Um, so in this case, on the book cover, what you have is Theodore Adorno, the German philosopher, yeah. is coming in through the doorway <laughs> zooming in. and he's he's saying, are you winning, son, um, to the boy? And the boy is on a computer and he's not gaming again, but he's not engaging in some kind of cyber sex game. He's making a meme of Mark Fisher. There you go. And, and there's actually, there is like a, the head of Mark Fisher, the philosopher who uh, passed away in 2017 or indeed took his life. Um, and that actually is a redrawn popular meme of Mark Fisher that's in there. So it's all actually redrawn by me. So it's none of it's actually taken from memes directly, which I guess is on rates to me somehow. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> But um, yeah, it's been controversial, which I think maybe where, is where you go next. I don't know. I don't know what you're going to say. Well, okay, so yeah, so and and Mark Fisher is drawn in the style of that's it's maybe I, is it called Doomer or there's all these like well, it's a style yeah from of Doomer. Yeah, but basically of Wojak, it's kind of a Mark Fisher Wojak, which is just kind of a crude line drawing. Figure okay, so yeah, so so used, Theodore yeah. Adorno, the it's a Dorno Wojak. Dorno Wojak. Okay, so this is there's a lot of layers here, but I think we should we should just first say there. So the the Frankfurt School is something that probably most people consuming this content have at least heard of, and it's weirdly been more in the news over the past like year or so as it's been attacked from the right in all sorts of strange ways. And I, I don't know if you caught this. There's an American, um, like re, like Fox News radio host guy named Mark Levin. Who, who is sort of a, I don't know, he fancies himself an intellectual, but he's a total fraud. And he wrote a book about something, you know, critiquing the Frankfurt School, but he called it like the Franklin School or something. Like he got it wrong consistently throughout the entire book and no one who was, no, it wasn't copy edited or whoever copy edited it had total disgust for this thesis. And so they didn't correct it. So he calls it like 
you know, Frank Ford school or Frank Lynn school or something and seems to think it was an actual school, but it's not, it's not, there wasn't, if I correct that, there was not a Frankfurt school. It was a term referring to a group of German philosophers who were Marxists and wrote about, generally about culture. But so but yeah, you provide they, an actual they, definition for people who aren't familiar with. The well, they, they coalesced around the Institute for Social Research, which is an institute in Frankfurt, but it wasn't called the Frankfurt School, and not everybody who is considered to be in the Frankfurt School was associated with this private institute. Um, but they're a group of German philosophers. Uh, the institute started in the, in the mid-1920s, I believe, but the, what, what we call the Frankfurt School generally are a group of German philosophers who I think were actually the second wave of philosophers associated with that institute. And they include uh, Theodore Adorno, Walter Benjamin, Herbert Marcuse and Max Horkheim, and those being the most famous four, or you know, the, the four that are, are best known and, and, and respected. And basically, these four um, all fled Nazi Germany before the war. Um, Horkheimer, Adorno, and Marcuse ended up in America, where they carried on the Institute's research there. And Benjamin ended up in Paris, and as the Nazis entered France, he fled uh, to, he tried to get to America via Portugal, so he fled to the Spanish border, but then he realised that route got shut down, so he took his life on the border there, um, or near the border in, in, in his lodgings. Um, so anyway, their philosophers best known for combining a kind of materialist Marxist account, uh, so Marxism essentially, with a cultural reading. A cultural interpretation so they consider culture to be really fundamental to to the left basically um and that's what we're left with and, and, and they've become kind of central to university reading lists throughout the whole of the west uh particularly for art theory and media theory but also some political theory mm -hmm. yeah okay so and they've also you know, like I alluded to earlier, have sort of weirdly become boogeymen, at least in, for the American right. And yeah. you know, when Jordan Peterson was a sort of popular figure three or so years ago, he t he talked about cultural Marxism, and it seemed like he was referring to these thinkers in his, you know, somewhat mixed up way, as like you know the evil that he wanted to fight against. Yeah, um, this this has been ongoing. I think I think since the nineties. But who traces this really, really well? In an essay, in a collection of essays that came out, I think last year, of his is Martin Jay, who you may know, an American scholar. He's a historian of philosophy, and actually, I did a, a talk with him, much like this talk, uh, on a channel that's called the Acid Left, which I run with a guy called Adam Ray Atkins. Um, but he's really well up on this, and actually, Martin Jay got caught out because he was asked on a talk show to talk about the Frankfurt School. I didn't realize he'd been asked on a talk show exclusively with right wing, you know, these right wing people um, who who basically think that the Frankfurt School are responsible um, for neoliberalism, basically for neoliberalism and for woke culture, as people call it. Um, and it's just none, none of this is true. They've just completely gone off on a tangent. And I know Richard Spencer actually wrote his MA on the Frankfurt School. Following this kind of line, oh, okay, Richard and it's just the, like, it, nationalist, yeah, yeah, prominent guy, sort of faded over the past couple of years, but he was famously punched 
in the face yeah, yeah. during Trump's inauguration in 2017. Um, and I, he sort of, you know, he's been like sued in various ways since then. It's sort of diminished, but okay, that's interesting. And so, so these are like highly contested figures still, somewhat strangely for people who have all been, you know, so Benjamin killed himself in 1940 and the others kept on working until like the 70s or 80s. But, you know, it, it, it is strange that we're still talking and thinking about them, including in ways that are totally insane. And I guess and also, you know, the whole debate about critical race theory in the U.S., you know, like critical theory. And I, I don't know. And I, as I understand it, emerged, you know, from like French and German philosophers and then arrived in America in different ways. But anyway, OK, so that's the Frankfurt School. So who is Mark Fisher? Because the, the average person watching or consuming this may not have ever heard of Mark Fisher. And I'm only somewhat aware of him. Um, but can you explain who Mark Fisher is? Yeah, he's a British theorist um, who basically became very well known for his blog uh, in the 2000s, sort of first decade um, of this century. And he was really at the forefront of a strong theory blogging community. And it it had as one of one of its moment it had as one of its main motivations um, a desire to kind of overturn the very cliquey, very snobby academic publishing system. So, you know, you know what academic publishing is like. Um, and as blogging became a thing one could do, uh, there rose a group of theory bloggers, uh, including Fisher, Nina Power, Nick Cernacek was very young because most of them are like in their 40s or older um but nick sanacek uh you may have heard of uh graham Harmon. uh and anyway fisher was very central to this with a blog called k-punk and he actually uh then with a few people that he met i think at university he set up a publisher called zero books or this is kind of a contested story he was very involved with zero books when they were set up um when Zero Books was initially set up. So now we're probably going to get into a bit of this uh, backstory of Zero Books and repeated books, maybe. But um, he set up the Zero Books, and one of the first books to be published by Zero Books was Capitalist Realism. Um, and Capitalist Realism has become huge. It's one of the few books, one of the few theory books to sell over 100,000 this century. And basically, it tells a story of how capitalism's become the only kind of version of reality we can conceive of. So one of the central theses is that it's easier to it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Um, and the other one, he he goes back to something Thatcher said, I believe, there is no alternative. So you know, it's kind of a directive coming from her, but it's also discussed by him, also Zizek and Frederick Jameson. This notion that it's impossible to to, to even conceive of another way of doing things. Um, and obviously right, so they the, say that the sub, they say you know, the subtitle of capitalist realism is there no alternative question mark yeah yeah because of, of that sure apparently i think saying there is no alternative so then you know they talk about this uh why is it easier to imagine the end of the world uh than the end of capitalism and so fisher basically talks about that and he talks about how one of the main problems is that left culture is co-opted okay so i think it's a familiar story um Che Guevara for example it doesn't I don't think he mentions Che Guevara but this is like a very kind of easy one for people to get because we see Che Guevara's face on mugs and t-shirts and watches and things but he talks about 
Uh, Kurt Cobain is one example. So Kurt Cobain obviously had his visceral dislike of establishment and uh, of, I guess, uh, middle class things and popular culture alike. Um, he got turned into this kind of, um, you know, pop figure um, and made kind of palatable. Um, so Kurt Cobain is one example. I don't, I don't think Kurt Cobain is a good example in the political sense because I think he was very political, actually tending towards um, uh, identity politics. He spoke very much like a feminist. I guess he may have called himself a feminist. Um, but um, the example there is, is is more about his rage and uh, his rage at the system than any political program in the kind of Marxist sense. But anyway, Fisher talks about various figures that have been co-opted, and this is very much in the line of the Frankfurt School, who spoke about a similar thing. What I found really interesting is looking at uh, Instagram a lot last year is the way in which Fisher himself has been co-opted since he took his own life in 2000, uh, 2017. Uh, tragically, and um, he has become a meme, basically, on Instagram, on Facebook, particularly. Um, and these memes don't do best justice to his theory necessarily, partly because they're just memes and they have to kind of respond to the algorithm. So to make a meme that's effective, you have to catch people's attention in a couple of seconds. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, the book I wrote was partly about that. So I'm responding to a situation in which Fisher's theory is more popular than it was when he was alive. This happens when people die. Um, but, you know, even more popular than one might expect in that light because he's been memed so much. Um, and this is great because actually the memes do lead people to read him. But on the other hand, they do lead to a lot of kind of quite silly talk around him, you know. So it's balancing those two things out. So the book kind of addresses that but also puts Fisher in, in the correct context alongside the Frankfurt School. Although we might choose other people that he, he's influenced by, like Stuart Holm, who I don't mention. But here I mentioned the Frankfurt School because I think that a you know, generation of people getting into Fisher and other left theorists through the internet, maybe, you know, they can be helped by understanding that there's this kind of background in the Frankfurt School. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and so one of the things you mentioned is that you can, like, by bed sheets that reproduce the cover of capitalist realism, and so then you can like have sex on <laughs> capitalist realism, and that's strange. And also is like a weird, perhaps comment on the on Jordan Peterson's thing about like make your own bed um, or clean your room as the uh, as his yeah, I mean, young man. Yeah. So it's her. It's, yeah, I mean, not an also strange. Yeah, somebody did order, did make a Mark Fisher bedspread. And then before I think anyone did that, there was a CGI mock-up of a Mark Fisher bedspread. So it was not actually that it's for sale, um, like no one's producing them en masse, but people have been making them. Um, and I think it was an Instagram user called Jorts666 who first made a Fisher meme with a bedspread. Which I have to get right because I failed to mention her in a video on YouTube. So, um, um, but it has spread since then. But anyway, there was a meme. Any there was a meme going around. Basically, the meme was um, tonight we'll be fucking on the like X bed where X was like a bedspread like Minecraft. So the Minecraft video game has bedspreads. Okay. So somebody made a meme like tonight we'll be fucking on the Minecraft bed. So from that, somebody made a fishing meme. Okay. And it's just like so inappropriate 
in a way, him having passed away, having passed away, him being very timid. Um, yet there's this meme going about, which has definitely popularized Fisher. So I say in the book, well, look, I mean, he would have laughed at this, you know, probably, but he would have laughed at it like we laugh at it, like we laugh at it kind of because it's funny, but we're also laughing at it because we're exasperated, you know, like so many things on the internet that feed into the left. Um, maybe it's the same for people on the right who see right memes, I don't know. Um, but, you know, being of the left, I see this happening in relation to, to socialist memes, for example, and feeling like, yeah, well, this is all good. And, you know, and it's funny and whatever. Maybe people are getting into left-wing stuff, but you also feel that it's stopping people doing anything really useful. You know, that people are engaging online at a level of jokes, but they're not engaging maybe as activists or mm -hmm. what have you. Right. Okay, so... Most so, did you put this book together primarily during the post during the pandemic, like post March twenty twenty? Because there's a lot of references in here, and yeah. it's almost like it, it seems like you're thinking about like you know when, when real life suddenly like went away and people could only interact through their computers. That sort of heightened the yeah. you know I don't know real life and online life. Like we, or at least for some yeah people, yeah yeah well sure yeah. You know, it, it sort of like merged the separateness sort of merged together because there's no other access to other people aside from through screens and social media and memes. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was put together during COVID, and and I was very much feeling uh, the whole situation being a negative one, and you know, for, for me and for the world, right. and not at all enjoying it, and, and wondering how things would 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 um, transpire when we got out of lockdown. Um, and of course, now we are we out yet? I don't know. I guess we're not really out. This is this is a weird thing. We, there's not a time where we can say, "Hey, we're out. Let's take to the streets." It's kind of staggered. I don't know what it's like there. I'm in Finland, um, where there's not really a lockdown, but there are some restrictions in place sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, in the US, it's 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 weird. It's, it, things are in many ways back to normal. You know, school schools are almost universally open. Almost all. You know any business or or any anything that shut down in March 2020 is basically reopened. But now the fights are about: uh, do you have to wear a mask if you're inside? Do school kids have to wear masks? And vaccination, of course, which is I don't know what it's like there, but vaccination continues to be highly fraught in in the U.S. But yeah, so there, there, it it hasn't been the return to 2019, you know, pre 2020 life that maybe we thought was would be possible six months or a year ago but in, in a lot of ways you know I, I don't people are not locked inside anymore and <laughs> yeah yeah well, this is true, yeah. interacting in, in mostly you know mostly normal ways i don't know maybe but it, it differs numbers of best country and there's probably parts of the country where no one's wearing a mask anyway and, it, and life is just continuing on uninterrupted so so yeah i mean i certainly certainly i felt that there ought to be some mass movement at the end of COVID, but yeah, partly because the right wing have been making movements during COVID and the left needs a response. So I was dealing with that a little bit, um, but this goes back even to, to the US election and the capital, um, what do you call it, capital uprising or Gen, Gen 6 or something. Yeah. Um, 
I guess that was already in the COVID period, but I mean, you know, it was very apparent there that the right had some kind of alternative movement happening that had not really a cool image, but had an image that was kind of um, strong in, you know, even in a bad way, uh, with the image of um, the shaman, the self-styled, uh, <laughs> called yeah, the shaman, shaman guy, um, who I believe was just sentenced yesterday. We're recording this. Was it? Yeah. Friday, November 12th. Okay. Right? And I think he got a couple years in prison yeah okay so one thing yeah so you write you write about QAnon and the capital storming the capital whatever we want to call that and shortly shortly after that after january 6th i talked to i had, I did an episode with daniel bessner who is a leftist historian in the u.s and has writes about foreign policy primarily but um and i put the question to him about how the left was reacting to that event which you know i guess there's and there's some romantic vision on the left that the people will join together, rise, and in a recreation of storming the Bastille or something, they will like take power for the people. And then the only group that ever actually did manage to rise and storm the halls of Congress were these deranged, confused conservatives who thought that um, either the election was being stolen for Trump or that there were children being held in the basement of the Capitol being sexually abused and their blood was being consumed. By Democrats to yeah. give them special powers, and so like the dream of the left of the of storming the Capitol happened in this totally bizarro, freakish way by a bunch of ragtag, you know, losers uh, like people who own car dealerships in Ohio or something and travel to the Capitol led by the farcical, you know, um, uh, maniacal <laughs> sociopath who was in charge of the country for four years, and so it's. <laughs> There was sort of like, yeah, the people finally rose up, but it was this bizarre postmodern crazy event coming from the right. Do, I, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, 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 for sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I, mean, I think that, I mean, I, at that point in the book, I look at Adorno and Horkheimer and their book called Dialectic of Enlightenment, which they wrote uh, whilst they were in America during World War II. And there's a chapter at the end of that called Elements of Anti-Semitism. And they look at how um, how anti-Semitism became a, a kind of a mass thing, a mass movement or mass belief, um, mass prejudice in, um, in Germany. And they talk about the displacement of fear onto the other um, and the need for a narrative in times when people kind of miss, they, they, they miss a story that defines their life. So I think that, I mean, the parallels between what they say and how uh, the Nazi party became so big and the kind of weird mythology behind the Nazi party and, and, and their policies and, their, and then what they, were, what they were projecting, the parallels between that and QAnon are incredible. And I think it really does come down to people feeling lost and needing a narrative, but certain narratives kind of presenting themselves. Here it gets a bit Jungian, but I don't mention Jung in the book, I don't think. I'm pretty sure I don't say Jung's name. <laughs> um, but people kind of grasp onto narratives that, that suggest themselves maybe from within. But, you know, we're, we're combating, we're fighting to try and put a narrative out there, the right wing and the left wing. But the right wing don't really get a narrative across. They get something else coming across that leads people to follow the right wing. So, you know, the, the Satan-worshipping um, Democrats who are drinking children's blood isn't the narrative that Trump was pushing or that any of the old guard were pushing. 
and they wouldn't want to be pushing that. But that presents itself and pushes people rightwards. And the interesting thing about QAnon is it wasn't really written. It, it, there are such things as um, Q drops. So I guess you know how this works. That yeah. QAnon is supposed to be like this guy who worked for the secret services who started dropping information on the internet. But from there, it started to take a life of its own, uh, take it on a life of its own. And people started kind of writing it and adding bits and what have you. Um, so it's a story that's very irrational. It's kind of grows up um, from a, an online an online mass suggesting different bits and pieces, which means that there's probably very few people that believe all of it. And a lot of people don't believe any of it. Um, but I think the power of it is that it's subconscious and it taps into something, if that makes sense. So the problem that the, that, that the left have is that we can't propose a better narrative because the narrative that, that, that pushes the right isn't really proposed. It's something that comes up from strong archetypes. And, and, and it, we don't want to get into Jungian archetypes. Um, simple things like um, the projection of inner fear or inner disgust. So basically, we as humans, this is what Adorno and Horkheimer say. It's not me it's just getting dark, but Adorno and Horkheimer say, look, we're principally scared of, of nature. And by that, you know, of, you know, we're scared of dying. Um, and so in points where people are put under a lot of pressure, and especially collectively, and this fear of death is particularly acute, even if it's not what people probably think they're fearing, but this fear of nature, the other is particularly acute. People start to turn the fear outside and identify uh, weakness and and uncleanliness in other people. Um, so he says basically, or he, uh, by that I mean, uh, I always say Adorno, everyone says Adorno, but it's Adorno and Horkheimer. They said that um, basically there is a kind of pushing of a paranoia outwards onto the other. So without getting into narratives in the sense of like blood drinking and things and whether they are, you know, narratives that are intrinsic to us, um, there is this process clearly going on, I think, that people get, they get scared and they respond to it um, with these kind of scapegoats. And it's very visceral and, and, and it's happening on a very natural level as well. You know, unfortunately, it's something that humans do. So trying to like think of a narrative that we can, we can kind of neatly present to people as the left is very difficult because we're countering innate tendencies. Um, but I think we should still push a narrative. And the thing is, you know, what, what dismays me slightly, and I talk about in that chapter, is the narrative is all there. The, the left don't miss a convincing narrative, disregarding, okay, whether or not it's going to combat effectively with this kind of, you know, intrinsic tendency to scapegoat. There is, in any case, a logical narrative we can present, which we never present, which is, look, why don't we be the first society, individually as nations or collectively, that makes an egalitarian world? You know, why don't, why don't, why don't we be the country that pushes an uh, egalitarianism, the, the, a society where everyone can achieve, you know, what they should be achieving according to their talents and then be recompensed fairly? Um, I mean, that's like a really big and brave dream because, of course, the right, are, you know, they do push this kind of heroism, heroism. Um, but I think that's that's enough heroic. But when is anyone like saying that's what the left is trying to do? Maybe Bernie to some degree. Hmm. 
yeah i mean the 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 sort of like yeah it's hard to describe like yeah everything the QAnon thing people grabbed on the different bits of it but sort of like you know ideas of you know a secret secret forces arrayed against the good of the people and then you know a heroic figure who is fighting against it these are like yeah these arise seem to arise deep in human psychology and in vague outlined you could say um you know are reminiscent of the rise of nazism in germany um but yeah it was you know it's sort of a tragedy farce kind of thing um of just being you know like you know hitler hitler <laughs> i was gonna say hitler was right hitler was right about like jews did exist you know like that he, like that was a fact but like the deep state blood-sucking um child kidnappers like those don't exist and like donald trump is a real person um i don't know it's just it was like so you know turned so beyond um the realms of reality that it's very strange that it inspired people to you know commit violence on its behalf but that did happen and that's <laughs> that's strange and yeah and you know did, I, I don't think you, you don't mention this but and i don't know how if this reached you in europe but after after bernie you know after joe biden like obviously achieved like the path to the nomination a lot of the left energy online and this coincided with the lockdown um people were sort of like well what do we do now do, you know where should where should, where should our energies go and um and matt chrisman who's one of the co-hosts of chapo trap house co i think coined or popularized this idea of um real pilling are, are you familiar with this uh okay so it was basically like he was telling people like you should get into like grilling like like barbecuing like or, like grilling meat in your backyard because like we're all stuck at home and you should just sort of like embrace a hobby or something that brings you personal pleasure because he um maybe i'm misrepresenting this somewhat and well i'll tr track down a link where someone discusses this or chrisman himself does it. he was doing like vlogs separate from chapo um during spring summer 2020 talking about this but it was almost sort of a like tend your own garden kind of thing of like okay, like we tried, but Bernie is not going to win. And so we could, you could spend your time like fighting online or you could like do something in the real world that, you know, brings immediate satisfaction and accomplishes mm -hmm. something. And so that, and also because everyone was, was stuck at home. And so you couldn't like go to your, go to a meeting or something um, in real life of like your DSA chapter or something, you could like focus on some immediate task and like do it with, like try to achieve mastery in it or something like that and that would be a way to stave off the post perny um you know depression that settled over like the american left once it became clear that he was not going to win the nomination um and then, so that's and as I, I haven't kept up with this as like you know real life has sort of reemerged, and whether this sort of it's almost like a i don't know it's not like a political quietism but it's like yeah just you know try to you, you know you're not going to find personal fulfillment through the the democratic socialism coming to America. So, like, find something else instead of fighting online, essentially, which is ultimately just going to make you um, upset and and going to be sort of a waste of time. And I'm so I'm probably not laying this out 
exactly as Crispin um, himself did. But how did I mean? Yeah, a lot yeah. of your, the book is like you know how the left participating in in the online discourse, with, which involves memes. You know, <laughs> they are not how, how you know they are not flourishing, or is this a waste of time or something? How do you think about this? Um. Well. Yeah, I mean, I do talk about, I don't know how I say that it's not really working on the online left. I guess I do, I guess I, I, guess I do say that, yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah, the thing is that, that things are co-opted uh, kind of from the start, that there is no real revolutionary moment, that that doesn't really seem possible, and then people retreat into different ways of coping with that, and I suppose grilling might be, Grilling could be one of them, but um, I, you know I think that you, you know, and there's a whole part of the online left that isn't really trying to do anything that they're just trying to make podcasts. <laughs> um, and and I think you know this COVID gives us a possibility maybe um, in that there has to be an end, although you know it's coming to an end and we're not seeing much happen. This is what the book didn't really predict, but I you know I think I was just kind of like hoping. That, that maybe I could like push things a little bit uh, in, in some tiny way and that would meet up with other people pushing things and when we would end up with a with a kind of um, perhaps a street movement or some but some kind of movement which was led by uh, maybe led by online but you know where people online direct people to go offline so basically the book kind of talks about various ways in which the online left is failing compares these to to things the Frankfurt School said uh, in in the kind of kind of Second World War and post-war period, and takes a few of the things they said, a few of their kind of remedies, which I say remedies, they were kind of all pretty bleak, but a few of their kind of you know, last-ditch attempts or things they say, you know, we could possibly try, you know, in lieu of any real solution existing. And I take those and I say, well, if we applied those um, today, so there are things like Benjamin used to go around, um, and this is something which is like not online, obviously, because he was like living in the 30s or <laughs> died in 1940. But this is something we could also do not on, online. He used to go around um, the arcades of Paris, these kind of covered, um, well, you know, shopping malls basically, but or, ornately made ones um, made in the 1800s. He used to go around these kind of casually strolling and looking at the stuff they were selling. So there was this kind of fashion for doing this back in the 1800s by, you know, what are famously known as the flaneurs. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of dapper middle, well, yeah, upper middle class people, children of industrialists, didn't have much to do and just walked around Paris um, looking kind of good. And Benjamin basically emanated this. And what he was doing is he was trying to understand their mindset and understand the 19th century as a means to understanding how they got to where they were in the 1930s. So his kind of method was to like engage trawling these arcades, looking at things that were for sale, looking at the architecture of the arcades that had been made in this kind of heavy period of industrialization in the 1800s and drawing what he called constellations. So by drawing, I mean like in his mind, putting together objects with the architecture and hoping through the constellations to penetrate into some truth about capitalism. Um, so by putting together different objects, artworks, also bits of poetry and theory he was reading in loose constellations, he hoped to kind of excavate something about capitalism. 
because like the reality of capitalism is, is often impenetrable but if you take bits and pieces maybe you you might stumble across something so what i say is that we could become possibly digital flanners so I mean, there is the possibility of actually doing what he was doing going and walking around shopping malls and, and di dissecting the crap on sale but also you know we are looking at stuff in a similar way to flanners in the way we browse the internet um it's happening a lot faster but we're kind of looking at stuff we we take something on board we ignore something else we make constellations of of media objects so my argument is by making constellations by gathering together different memes videos blogs etc in our minds we could possibly try and you know maybe see what's common to them or even what's not common to them but you know work something out in relation to them and try and better understand how we got here how we got where we are today so rather than just like doing i think what we do if, when we're not conscious which is just be bombarded by this kind of nonsense on online is to kind of like meaningfully and casually kind of pick bits out and and, and in doing that try and kind of map out capitalism that was one suggestion i have um, and another suggestion comes a bit later. He's looking at Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse, who um, I think, I'm not sure if he's the one who died the late, was he? He died in the 70s, I believe, late 70s. Um, he, I think he was, he, he was one of their generation of the Frankfurt School, because actually they carried on afterwards with subsequent generations. But of that kind of most famous generation, he was the one that was uh, working latest. And... Marcuse was very involved in the student movement in America, and he worked with as an activist with um, Angela Davis. Mm -hmm. And um, I talk a bit about that in the last chapter and how his his kind of mission um, contrasted with Benjamin, his kind of flanneristic bourgeois attitude. Adorno had a similarly bourgeois attitude, although he had a slightly different angle. Um, and I talk about Marcuse's great refusal. So basically, Marcuse said we ought to start, we ought to partake in the, what he called the great refusal. We ought to basically refuse to to take part in capitalism and consumerism. And he argued that this was likely to come from the kind of dejected and the outcast. So he kind of saw a movement being made from students and unemployed people and, and migrants. And what I basically say is we need a bit of like both things happening. Benjamin's flanerism, but online. But then to use the online space to call for a gathering of people in, in real spaces. Um, and this being kind of the perfect time because there's a generation of people who were denied their university experience or, or earlier high school experience or whatever, because they didn't go to university in the way we used to or the way some of us did um you know because there was lockdown uh mm -hmm. but also you know, a lot of people who wouldn't have gone to university but just young people who would have been gathering and exploring and doing drugs and whatnot um which is you know a necessary part of growing up perhaps um and it does kind of link in the doing drugs something i'll come up with in a minute um <laughs> but but um so this could be a moment for that to happen that, that you get unemployed people who are pissed off because there's still no work although this is something that's distorted a lot in in the media like we're having this economic boom but i think only for certain people it's like it's really a stock market boom and a cryptocurrency boom now and then um you know but there are people who who you know didn't really recover from the covid lockdown in terms of work 
and you have dejected people who didn't get the university experience and you have young people who didn't get to gather in the way they would have done and these people could be brought together and they could be organized online so the, the role of the online left could be yeah, okay to interact with the online left to interact with memes etc to try and understand them and what they're pointing at in terms of capitalism but then to use your podcast use your youtube videos twitter whatever um to to get people going out and, and talking to people and by this i don't mean rioting and i get now to mark fisher because mark fisher wrote about marcuse so all this kind of converges and gets wrapped up at the end of the book because mark fisher at the end of his life was working on a book called acid communism um and he talked about marcuse in the introduction which has been actually printed it's online it's you can find it in a, in a publication of fisher writings and in his introduction to acid communism he talks about marcuse and the great refusal and it looks like that is where the book is going to point but he didn't finish it but um he says at some point in the book though he has this description of of how things used to be i think in the 60s and he describes apart from describing various elements of um the hippie movement and counterculture in that sense he describes a excuse me a family holiday on a boat, I think it was, in Britain. And he's basically just saying, you know, that people could have holidays back then. And he talks also about what was playing on the radio and there being some kind of music which was conducive to, I suppose, he didn't say free thinking, but, you know, more conducive to free thinking than music is today. Um, you know, there was some originality creatively. But he's basically speaking about, you know, there was an ability for, for, for people to go on communal holidays and things, the working class. So the thing is, he is definitely talking about resurrecting counterculture. This is why he calls his book Acid Communism. So he's linking psychedelics with communism. Um, but, he, you know, this thing where he talks about the family holiday really kind of reassured me in a way, because the thing is, like, we can't make a revolution or, or anything approaching one. We can't bring about democratic socialism um, through parties and dropping acid. Um, it's just not going to cut it with the... With the the, the over 65 voting bracket for example <laughs> or you know a number of voting brackets and demographics um i think there is definitely a call for a counterculture but i think we have to also think about how are we going to speak to elderly people how are we going to speak to people who have family concerns how are we going to speak to you know people with investments you know etc etc um i mean i suppose you know if we're talking about a strong left kind of shift maybe the people inve with investments are not the ones we need to convince as much but you know there's a certain swave of society that we, we we can perhaps convince but i think it, it needs it needs us to go out and talk to people to workers to pensioners whatever to students um but you know this mean this means you need serious organization you need people who can go and speak to the elderly and people who can go and throw rave parties they're not going to be the same people necessarily you know, but we we have got potential to to organise these people online. So it's actually in a way um, that I came across through the Jeremy Corbyn and uh, the 2019 general election campaign, which was based on the Bernie Sanders campaigns, um, and that is what's called what is it called dispersed organisation, I think, and basically relies on a kind of internet interface, and you log on. And you go and see these different groups like the canvas, the street canvassing group, the phone call group, the memeing group, the group that make videos. And you go in your groups and, you know, if you're running an election, 
you someone says we need a video on you know um taxation policy we need a video on legalizing marijuana or whatever or we need you know and then you you have other groups today you say we need a group of 40 people to go to new york in this borough and talk to people about housing or something so you can really organize many different people across many different uh media to campaign so this was used very effectively by sanders and corbyn although neither of them actually ended up in power <laughs> but it could be it could be used all the time to organize the left to to go and talk to people to do stuff mm -hmm. it could be street yeah, I mean, happening it could be you know gone so i'm talking too long well something that you know i see you know the the, the form that online discourse takes like tends towards like radicalization and tribalism and so there's and it seems like there's you know various reasons for this but it so it it in some ways you know like online becomes like various little hot houses where you know people are coming up with their own stuff and it you know it goes along all you know parts of life and so there's people who are really into the marvel movies and they get obsessed with them and then like if there's a a review a bad review of the marvel movie that comes out in the new york times they get all exercised and they send like mean things to the reviewer and, and stuff like this but it's just like move like there's a move towards extremism and but also sort of like you know existing in your own little sphere and then when you when you try to move into a different sphere or something in the real world it suddenly seems like oh all these people are kooks or something and so you know QAnon it would be one example of this of this you know people talking to each other and coming up with these crazy theories. And then when it crashed into real life, it, it, you know, it was this total disaster of, you know, people dying uh, at the Capitol and people in crazy costumes. And to the, you know, vast majority of <laughs> Americans, is, it looked like, you know, the insane asylum had been emptied or something. Um, but all these people at the time thought they were doing something good and, you know, working towards the great, you know, the greater good of the world. Um, and similarly, like, yeah, you know, there's you see people and I, you know, I'm not a leftist, and, but I <laughs> observe some of these people um, online, at least. And you see, you know, people who are like, you know, guillotine the rich or something. And then when and then when the like the normie like sees that they're like, what the fuck is this? You know, this is insanity. Whereas in the like in the little subculture that people have developed, it's like, oh, yeah, everyone is everyone is for cutting the heads off of, you know, <laughs> the capitalists and the oligarchs. And, you know, just the fact that you can, you know, it, it used to be you had to attend a meeting or something to talk to all of your comrades, and now it's in your pocket all the time. And yeah, it, it can just like, it, it just seems to go towards an extreme along whatever dimension. And so that seems sort of like bad for the idea of like enacting any sort of actual program in the real world, because people become sort of like deluded of like what's actually happening in real life if they're just seeing you know, there are a hundred like tanky friends online talking about, you know, the 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 coming revolution or something and 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 yeah, and then, you know, and then Joe Biden wins the nomination. Um, or, you know, Jeremy Corbyn gets wiped out in the twenty nineteen election. Like so that seems like a danger of you know, of too much too much online is that like you become convinced that like you are right, Every, like everyone you you know, everyone is going to agree with this great idea you've had, and then it like it hits it's the real world and, and it fails. This is totally true. Yeah, I mean, I think 
the move towards tankies, uh, you know, the far left communists uh, making memes and, you know, just very extreme statements on platforms like Twitter. Um, I think that was led partly by how far right the right wing became, you know, and, and the way in which the swastika started to be a thing that people could use. Right. Um, you know, as an image, as a symbol, but often in memes. Um, and, and that led to this kind of response that, okay, so we'll start using the hammer and a sickle. Um, and I don't think it's going to work at all. No, I think you just end up, you know, creating a worse conflict like that. And yeah, I mean, one, we need something more subtle, but I don't think necessarily someone needs something less extreme. But I think this is where this acid communism thing is appealing in a way. Although I think that the term, this is Mark Fisher's term that he came up with, as I said, before his last book. Um, the term is risky because it, it has acid in it and it has communism in it. Yeah, those are um, two but, strikes you know, right from the beginning, I would say for middle America at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it, I mean, Fisher says that the acid needn't be LSD. It can be acid, you know, as this corrosive substance. So it's like this communism that corrodes. Uh, structures. So I think the point either way with the acid as LSD or the corrosive substance is it counters communism as this kind of state system as this totalitarian system. So it's no longer that type of communism. Um, And the communism kind of counters the part of LSD which is just kind of people you know, going off their heads. Um, So maybe that could keep them on track. Um, But, you know, I I think it it recognises the need for a movement that's kind of extreme, but extremity is maybe in addressing, you know, how capitalism's bent our minds so much that the reality isn't real anymore. So, you know, we almost need an abstraction to take us out of that. And, you know, a bit like in maths, a plus, a plus, a plus is a minus, or a minus, or both, isn't it? A minus and minus is a plus, Uh either way. Um, that you can take the abstraction of capitalism and, and counter it with more abstraction, and then somehow maybe something clicks in place that's actually real. And this is actually very Adornian. Theodore Adorno uh, of the Frankfurt School basically said this, um, that we need to counter the abstraction of capitalism with more abstraction. And by, by abstraction, he meant like the numbers game, that everything has become a number, that we, we all have kind of a, a wage value. And that's an abstraction in itself that takes away from you know, actual lived life. And that we can counter that through, through abstract art. Um, <clears throat> and I think And you sort of, you sort of compare there. that to like absurdist memes or as, as maybe I think there's something there. Some parallel. Yeah, I think, well, I think there, there ought to be an absurdist meme trend and also a meme trend that slows us down. So I talk about in the book, uh, slow memes. So I think slowing down would already be uh, a counter to capitalism. I think the internet, the infrastructure of the internet is still brilliant. I, I think the internet is still like the best and worst thing that ever happened to us. <laughs> um, and you can probably relate. I mean, I'm in my early 40s. So I remember when, you know, in the 80s and 90s, before the internet, we were just kind of sitting around. I mean, you know, <laughs> being very young, I used to go and play, you know, football or with my toy cars or whatever, you know, but you know, other than that, we we were just watching walls or watching the TV, um, and then you get this internet thing where, where you can do anything, and you can so easily find like a book you want to read. So suddenly, Das Kapital is at your fingertips 
for example, you know, or whatever else you want. Um, so it's opened up so much for people, but obviously it's very restrictive as well. And, and the speed at which it's working is making cogent thought very difficult. Right. Um, even for people whose job it is to have cogent thoughts, you know. Um, I mean, there aren't very many academics that haven't been affected. And the ones that haven't been affected by the internet, I think, don't have anything useful to say because they're clearly not in touch with reality. Um, so, I think you know we we need to use the internet. We we need really to slow it down and take back control. And I don't think we need necessarily new platforms. I think we kind of do, but I think you know to say you know let's grow up new platforms that could take too long. And the platform, the alternative platforms that are brilliant, they don't appeal because they don't have that many users. So that obviously kind of counters people's motivations for using the internet. So you have like Diaspora. I think if that if that's still going. Um, What's the other one? Now I don't know. I will embarrass myself. I can't remember um, the name of one of the major co- competitors to Twitter. Um, the Mastodon. Um, but I mean, they're great and they function in similar ways to Twitter and Facebook, etc. But um, you just don't have the community outreach there. So I think that's limiting them. I mean, it shouldn't limit us. But I suppose that's part of, the, part of the mentality we need to overturn. But you're talking about overturning mentalities that are so ingrained in us that I think, you know, <clears throat> um, I think that people are still going to be driven to the big platforms. But I think what we have to do is we need to use the big platforms differently. I think there's nothing to stop us, you know, using the internet infrastructure as it is more usefully if we can just slow down our own, you know, interaction with it. But I think that what that entails maybe is engineering literally slow memes, memes that are designed to slow people down. Um, and you do get this a little bit. They're not strictly memes, but I mean, podcasts, for example, um, some YouTube videos, they do get people thinking and they can even be meditative in some in some sense. So I think there is some hope out there for, for a kind of use of the internet. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I forget my, I forget why I said that. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting how podcasting, you know, they're like, it seems like conservatives sort of dominate on YouTube and liberal leftists sort of dominate on pod, podcasting. Maybe not dominate, but like have, you know, it's, it's not 50 50 in either genre. And the podcast is, yeah, it's sort of inherently slower if you want to listen to the whole thing you can speed it up but you know they're usually longer and they also it's it's hard for a podcast to go viral or at least an individual episode of a podcast to go viral because like things go viral when you can just like in a snap understand what it is and then you like react to it by retweeting it or sending it to someone else and it's harder to get that from a podcast because yeah I mean, we've been talking for almost an hour already and um and it, you know the emotional emotional jolt or something that um, uh, is provided by a meme or an Im- image or a, a video or you know or just a video of some crazy thing happening on the street like someone slapping someone else on the on the street that sort of thing goes viral because you can understand it in a split second or something and you can't with podcasts you generally can't YouTube is somewhat different um, but I. 
Yeah, I, I and and also the fact that podcasting is much more distributed and and sort of like so anyone can do it, and there's no central like the Apple podcast thing is sort store or whatever is sort of like the equivalent of YouTube, but you don't need to go through that, and anyone can start a podcast using like RSS feeds and basic tech, you know, really simple tech, and do it themselves. Um, and so it's not like Facebook, where everything is ultimately controlled by Mark Zuckerberg or YouTube, where it's owned by Google or something. It, it is possible for stranger stuff to bubble up and get some amount of attention, but it, it's hard for it to, something to really, you know, really like dominate in the way that, you know, some image or something could dominate for a couple of days on, on social media. Um, well, for sure. Yeah. 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 Let's okay. You mentioned so there. You have a chapter about Benjamin's, I guess, most famous essay, which is a work of art in the Asian mechanical reproduction. Is that, is that the title? Yeah, yeah. And Good. you know, so he was writing when you know, like photography and maybe like photocopying or, or re reproduction of images was that was what he was writing about. And now any image can be replicated you know, infinitely at zero cost. And so not only is like the aura or whatever word he used gone from the image, it's like, you know, you don't need the printing, a printing press or something to copy. <laughs> yeah, copy. Yeah. Like anyone can do it. And it's sort of, I don't know if you, you mentioned <clears throat> NFTs, but, but that is sort of interesting as a weird, like counter move to somehow claim you put insert uniqueness back into even though it seems really dumb to me and probably won't work as just sort of a scam from my perspective, it does, it seems like an attempt to reinsert, you know, single, like the unique and the single and like some sense of ownership into the digital world where everything, you know, anything could be bootlegged or copied or, you know, distributed endlessly without anyone getting paid for it. I don't know. Do you have any, <laughs> how, how do you see those, those things? Well, um, yeah, I mean, Benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction obviously is an essay that's on a lot of reading lists, and I think people think they know it. And you know, I'm not saying they don't know it, but I think the thing that people pick up on is this aura. So Benjamin said that artworks have an aura, like they have something special about them uh, that goes in addition to their just being like a thing. Okay, so... He take, well, he, has, he doesn't say the Mona Lisa, but I always say the Mona Lisa as an example. But take the Mona Lisa as an example. The Mona Lisa um, is not simply, you know, this piece of board with a painting on it. it. It has some kind of, you know, something that goes beyond its material components. And Benjamin basically says that in the age of mass reproduction, and by that he means of, you know, prints, magazines, postcards, films, photos, etc., things lose their aura. So the Mona Lisa is no longer special because we have so many copies of the Mona Lisa, postcards, biscuit tins, T-shirts, etc. Um, and, okay, so that's super important. But actually, that's just the very beginning of the essay. What it goes on to say is that um, the mass reproduction of images is a really good thing. It democratizes culture because everybody can now see stuff. So you have this thing of the diminishment of the specialness and the uniqueness of a given work of art, but suddenly many, many more people can see it. So you have to kind of weigh these two things up. And in many, many more people seeing art, 
Benjamin said that by the 1930s, when he wrote it, people started to want for more stuff. So you imagine um, in the early part of the 1900s, people probably in their home had a picture of Jesus, Mary, maybe um, a book with a couple of pictures, maybe a couple of family photos, but that was their lot. Okay, And then they went out and they maybe saw some printed images in shops and there would have been images in local museums and libraries and things. But the amount of images people saw in one day, it probably amounted to tens at most. But suddenly people were seeing much, much more. Okay, suddenly they were they were all seeing at least tens of images a day. And they started to want, they started to be encouraged to want the things in the images, to kind of desire more, more wealth. So what Benjamin says is that the fascists, uh, the Nazis, basically redirected this desire for more property wealth into uh, Nazi parades, you know, like the Nuremberg rallies, uh, propaganda posters, films. They actually gave everyone a radio. Um, and they, they basically, you know, through these different means, they tried to redirect people's attention uh, to wanting uh, more living space in the East, this Lebensbaum invading the East, um, and to scapegoating minority groups like the Jews, okay? Um, so think about today. So you said, okay, today we have many, many more images. So if that was the case back then, think about today when people have Instagram, they have Twitch, they have YouTube, etc. We basically can all become famous and actually people can become famous accidentally. Okay. So people are really hungering. Hung, is that a word? Hungering? Sure. Um, <laughs> they hung, they're hungry. They're hungering after um, stuff uh, and fame more than ever before. And the thing is, it's very tangible because we know because we know we can become rich even accidentally. And there's also cryptocurrency kind of falls into this um, that people get, are getting very frustrated. So you see Donald Trump saying we'll build a wall and then Boris Johnson is saying, let's leave Brexit and take control of our destinies because people are used to making choices. So they don't get why they can't make choices politically. Um, and so I think we have a direct kind of correlation there. We can we can map today's experience onto that of the, the 1930s that Benjamin's speaking about. The only thing there is that whilst all these platforms offer wealth and power, they actually also give wealth and power to a greater degree than ever before. So it's not quite what Benjamin was talking about with people seeing movies. He talks about somebody ending up on a newsreel. So people shot newsreels for cinemas. Um, people didn't have TVs back then, um, or at least not en masse. Uh, but people could end up in the newsreel accidentally if somebody was shooting the newsreel mm -hmm. on the street. So he says that someone, you know, e ending up in a newsreel then gets kind of a hunger for more fame or somebody thinking that they might end up in a newsreel accidentally even. Um, but today you have obviously people, you know, who go on Twitch and whatnot. Um, so we can all kind of become famous or all not famous, as the case might be in a few years. So we're all, we all have no audience because we're all... We're all podcasting. Um, <laughs> Everyone's podcasting. No one's consuming the podcasts. That could happen. <laughs> uh, but I find the people who who, twi who, uh, who Twitch stream, who stream to nobody, the most interesting. But of course, by the time I'm there, they're, they're streaming to at least one person. You know? <laughs> but it's interesting that people, you know, prior to that would have been streaming, you know, to nobody, and people frequently do it. But but um, yeah, I think the thing is that more than ever, these these platforms do give us some degree of power and influence so it's that kind of balance i don't think we should write it off completely 
Uh, we were not quite in position we were in when Benjamin wrote. Uh, obviously, for many reasons, we're not, but it's not quite that bleak. I think at times we tend to like um, take the Frankfurt School as the, the beginning of media theory, and we tend to always theorize in this same way that the media is this top-down construct that that um they used to brainwash us and then we had this moment this golden moment of the internet in the late 90s when we all thought it could leave revolutions even up to the green revolution the the, the failed Iraq, uh, iranian sorry mm -hmm. revolution um in the first decade of this century um there was that kind of thing where we could do anything but it didn't last that long before we found out that the table had been turned again and that the the the, the elite run the internet and they basically you know use it in some ways to confuse us um, you know, because there are all these messages coming at us, we can't make any kind of narrative to counter the elite. But, you know, that's not the whole story. There's clearly something else happening. Like we're talking, you know, for example, you know, and, and I think we have to balance these two things. It's all there to play for still. But it does depend on us using the internet to get speaking to people in real life. Mm -hmm. I say as a leftist, but you say you're not a leftist, but I guess, you, you know, there's still things you want good things you want you know <laughs> but i don't think you're a QAnon. no that well i would say that's a false a false choice yeah i mean my i don't know i've, I've had uh you know my politics have shift, shifted somewhat as many people's have over the past five or so years but uh yeah i wouldn't call myself a, a leftist um but um yeah but you know i there's obviously like a, a universal desire for human connection and a lot of and that and that can be channeled into positive or negative means and it seems like you know like i'm reminded both of there was an, an early, when people started talking about nfts as like this collectible thing six or so months ago there was an article in the times where it's talking about like the initial nft image thing and it was like these penguins and you know get a picture of a penguin with a you know, uh, you know, a baseball cap on or sunglasses or something. And for some reason, people are attracted to this. But and so the guy, the author of the piece bought one of these so he could like enter into like the discord channel or chat room or something. And it seemed like, you know, so so people were like having fun trying to get the one who has the special hat, the penguin image has a special hat. But also it seemed like they basically were like just des desperate for community. And it was like bringing people together and they were chatting about their penguin stuff, but also whatever's going on in their day, and and, it, and the community aspect of it was sort of hidden because you had to pay to get into the club. But maybe that was like the real that was like the psychic reward in addition to the this idea that like it'll be worth a million dollars or something someday. And then also like the people who are going into anti-vax ivermectin, you know, Facebook private groups, like they also are like searching desperately for connection, and they've been misled by bad actors and you know ignorance and confusion into thinking that, you know, taking, uh, like, a different, you know, strange medicines is, or is a better way to fight COVID than to getting the injection. But, you know, they're, like, supporting each other, bucking each other up, saying, like, yeah, you got to stay, stay strong. And so that sort of, you know, the desire just for human connection, understanding, and recognition, like, that's sort of universal. And, and the technology, like, feeds it into different ways. Some of some many of which are bad, some many of which are neutral, some of which are good, but I don't know. Yeah, I think NFTs can be a good thing, but I, I'm yet to really work out how I need to really study this a bit more. But NFTs, I mean, the whole thing of 
taking out the middleman and being able to certify that an artwork is the original, um, you know, that could be democratizing to some degree or, or horizontalizing. Um, but it's being used in these terrible ways, which is feeding into um, art as finance at the moment. But that's how we're hearing about it. But I think, you know, when NFTs come into their own and this starts getting used for all kinds of different reasons, like this very, you know, this thing that is, you know, the tech that means that you can say that this one thing is that is the one original thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that will have so many uses. I think um, it's a bit like where the internet was like, hey, you go to www. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And you can look up, you know, a page about our TV program. And we were like, this is what the internet will be. And it became something completely different. I think NFTs will kind of explode in that way. So I think we've got a long way to go to understand really what will happen. The same with crypto as well. I don't think we really know what crypto will achieve. Yeah, it, it's hard. I'm skeptical of that whole world. And I guess I'm skeptical of most things, but it's obviously early days of that. And I don't know. I mean, the, the fact that like the like art that NFT collectors seem to be trading is all like these bad like line drawings of different animals wearing different like hats and sunglasses and stuff and like so it, it's it's like even calling this art is you know is, is a stretch it's like kitsch crap or something um that i don't know that that like there's no there's seemingly no actual art is being created through this movement right now but it's yeah it's still early days and who, who knows how things will develop um is there anything else you want to mention we've gone a bit over an hour now um Anything else you want to mention about the book or the ideas contained uh, within? I think we covered quite a lot. Um, I mean, there was this. Oh wait, did you want, did you want to talk about the the strange like uh, postmodern like doubling that happened? Where yeah, yeah. Let's, okay, let's mention that story, which is. <laughs> I, why don't you just explain, sort of? Yeah. Okay. What's, what's um, well. I suppose I, I I explain it like you know a real life scenario I had when I, I when I was looking at how you do when a book's coming out you end up kind of like looking at how it's doing before it comes out um, these days that means looking on Amazon and just just to check your books on there for example but you can also check like relatively how the sales are doing and things so I went looking for my book on Amazon um, I mean this all sounds terrible because it sounds terribly vain and then I was using Amazon you know which is not good either <laughs> I, yeah, but, well okay. you know we're all human we have to live in this. Fallen yeah. world of capitalism. Uh, yeah. I mean, I looked on Amazon and I saw like another book with the name The Meaning of Mark Fisher with the same font as my book, which is basically just a zero books font. Yeah. So the, all, the um, zero books covers often look similar, yeah, with a similar yeah, with, font with for the that title. same. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. My, my initial thought was like, someone's made some kind of joke. Okay. That can only kind of bode well because I expected the cover to be, to be memed people to make memes of it but then it kind of dawned on me that hang on this is maybe a real book somebody like and this was two weeks before my book came out i mean i think it theirs went up like seven four eighth uh of september and it was hang on 9 11 was 11 for september yeah it was 9 11 their version came out so i started thinking well hang on maybe this is an actual book maybe it's actually my book with a different cover or something i didn't know what was happening then there was all this stuff on this instagram account called academic fraud and I realized that academic fraud makes spoof books. And I've done it with some other people as well, but not actually using the title, but just kind of like using a similar aesthetic. So I realized, okay, well, this is like, maybe this is interesting still, but I'm still worried because I just realized that academic fraud asked me for a PDF of my book 
few weeks before saying, I'm going to give you some publicity. So I've just realized that he could potentially could, or he or she or them, they um, could have um, basically just published my book already. Um, anyway, it turned out, because they put the PDF out as well, that it was a book full of Mark Fisher memes. So literally, it's just a book full of memes off Instagram. Um, and, but then they started doing all this publicity on Instagram, saying this is the original and only Mark Fisher memeing book. And then like this is the real memeing of Mark Fisher. And the first, and then they started saying zero books are copying us. Um, and so it was quite, um, well, I mean, it's just bemusing because I think it's at a very basic level of like, if you were a kid and you ever played copying games, like, you know, you start saying something and your friend says the same thing back at you. And like, first it's funny, then you're like, stop it. And they're like, stop it. And you're like, no, fucking stop it. No, fuck. You know, that gets really frustrating after a while. You start uh -huh. to feel like quite scared. Because you're no longer you, yourself, you're no longer an individual. So I think on that level, it kind of disturbed me. Like there was somebody out there, you know, being me to some degree. Um, and then I just thought, well, hang on, this is probably just going to like play into my book and probably set, help sell it. But the thing is, it, it followed on some people trolling my book when my cover first was revealed on Twitter by Doug Lane of Zero Books at the time. Um, I got loads of people trolling it, hundreds, um, because they're the feeling that Zero Books shouldn't have been publishing books with Mark Fisher in the title, because Mark Fisher, going way back to the beginning when we were talking, I said to you that Mark Fisher helped to found Zero Books. So Mark Fisher helped to found Zero Books maybe with uh, Tariq Goddard and a couple of other people. They have Zero Books for a while running under a bigger uh, publishing company called John Hunt Publishing. They fell out with John Hunt himself and went and made Repeater. So Mark Fisher went and made a new publisher. Then Doug Lane came in a while later and started running Zero Books. And I published with Doug Lane, three books now. And the thing is, some followers of Repeater and some authors got very angry that there would be a book out by Zero about Mark Fisher, partly because Mark Fisher's passed away. But it's all like this is not really reasonable i mean surely people can write books about mark fisher and it's not the first book by zero to heavily reference mark fisher under doug lane's tenure um but anyway the other thing was it just had memes in it and had a meme on the cover so a lot of the things were like you know jesus christ how can there be a meme on the cover of a book or how can there be a book about memes of mark fisher this is sick you know people were really using this kind of language and they didn't i don't think they realized that there just were loads of memes about mark fisher you know, this was a phenomenon that existed that I was critiquing. I wasn't like bringing out the idea of Mark Fisher memes. And the book is very respectful of Fisher and putting him in the context of the Frankfurt School, who are the biggest theorists of the last century, I think, among the biggest theorists of the last century. Uh, is no, no bad thing. But so that was, you know, the thing is that this book, this spoof book, was on the back of me being trolled uh, very aggressively. So um, there has been this kind of controversy, but I've just seen the sales figures at the end of one month, and, and it's very good. They're very good. Um, it's outsold my second book, and actually my first book as well, um, but the second book that did pretty well, it's outsold that. It's been out for two years. Anyway, I don't want to, like, uh, you know, big up my sales <laughs> like that, um, but just to say that, you know, interestingly, this thing, this whole Ferrari um, didn't really damage uh, my sales. Actually, to the contrary, it might have helped the sales. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it sounds like it's sort of something like out of Kafka or Dostoevsky or something that you have this like double, you know, 
like going around, like running around town and causing mischief. And people are like, is this you or what, you know, what is happening here? So there's some sort of existential yeah, yeah. angle to this. But I guess yeah, also yeah. there's people who, who consider themselves, consider themselves like the real heirs to Mark Fisher or the real. Well, there is that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that. Yeah. The, 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 in Twitter, the crowd around repeater, I'm not saying it's repeater books at all. I'm not saying, but there's some of their authors and some of their followers, like their readers, they were like, there shouldn't be a book on Mark Fisher memes. The people who copied my book, they make Mark Fisher memes. They were basically like, we should be the ones making a book on Mark Fisher memes. <laughs> so there's a two opposite things happening. Okay, you know, so it's like, once and it's, it's it's a classic internet story where like everyone is mad and, <laughs> and there's like people yeah. lashing out. I mean, the thing is, well, that's the thing is because the book talks about how in its first chapters, how the internet derails any cogent thought. And so a book about that then gets derailed. <laughs> or someone people try and derail it. But this is, as far as I'm concerned, this is the, the real meaning of Park Fisher, the one I hold in my hands. And you can order it or purchase it. Um, I'm not going to say from where, but you can get it, you know, or all good, you know, quality books are sold yeah it's all it's all over online stores yeah there's lots of online stores you can use um and if or if people want to follow you in particular or your work where where can they do so um it'd be good to know my twitter handle for moments like this um <laughs> hang on uh one second because yeah twitter's a good place to find me um and i have this platform called the acid left so you look up the acid left on youtube i'm not a big advocate of um psych psychedelics and i actually do drugs for a long time that's that's true um but anyway we have a project called the acid left obviously ties in with uh acid communism um so there's a youtube there's an acid the acid left on insta so literally the acid left on insta and then my personal um twitter is at underscore left aesthetics at underscore left aesthetics Okay, and what those okay. links, links to those things will be below on the blog site. Um, and people can also follow me, uh, RACW on Twitter. And this is, you know, uh, the, I recently spun off my YouTube channel. And just a day or so ago, I was able to get like the unique URL. So now if you do like youtube.com slash culturally determined, that will bring you to the page where all of culture determined will go um going forward and i guess that is sort of like an nft or something because i have <laughs> i'm the only one who has that url and it's not just a string of numbers and letters and so forth um but yeah and so subscribe there if you like this kind of material smash that like button whatever uh, whatever you want to do um okay Mike, thank you for coming on. The book, yeah. once again, The Meaning of Mark much. Fisher, How the Franker School Foresaw Capitalist Realism and What to Do About It. Zero books. Um, and make sure you're getting the real one, <laughs> not the weird, the weird double uh, knockoff parody, whatever. Um, okay, so thank you, Mike, and thanks to our... Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's good, then. We'll see you again next time.